Now let's go ahead and get started. Chapter 9, Patient Assessment. And I started giving my little intro speech, if you will, I guess a few minutes ago, but I mean, it's just talking real. Will every patient you respond to be in a life or death crisis? Will the majority of the people that you respond to be in a life or death crisis? Will the overwhelming majority of people you respond to not be in a life or death crisis? Is it important to provide a systematic approach to patient assessment for all patients? I'm telling you, and if you think about it, it might keep you might keep your mind right at that 2 o'clock in the morning when you're tired, okay? Long story short, muscle memory for the brain. It is a systematic approach. You assess every patient the same every time. Why? Why is it important to cross all your T's and dot all your I's on the ones that you know are going to be okay? So you don't forget a step. So it will be a habit. It's muscle memory for the brain because I'm telling you, when you do, and you will numerous times, I told you in the beginning of this class, you will make life or death decisions as an EMT, as an advanced EMT, as a paramedic. You will. But just like in fighting fire, if you're crawling around in the second story of a structure and the roof starts to collapse and you're not sure what to do, what do you instinctually do? You revert back to what? Your training, what you know. It's something called, you can't read it, but I promise you, this says, <laughs> it says RPDM. Recognition Prime Decision Making. I've been here before, I know what to do. Okay? If you're standing between somebody and their last breath, and you're not sure on how to assess, if you're not sure about the simple stuff, the basics, if you're struggling with the basics, then how well are you going to perform under pressure? You're not. And that person may not fare too well. They may not fare well anyhow. I'm telling you right now, understand this, it ain't up to you who lives or dies. It ain't. Okay? But knowing how to properly assess, knowing how to properly treat, uh, is going to go a long way. Uh, knowing what to do, you, you know how to do what to do on the ones where you don't have time to think about it based on the ones that you did have time to think. Have I stumbled on myself enough? Y'all understand the point though, right? All right. We're going to talk about all this. Patient assessment is very important. AEMTs must master the patient assessment process. Does it, does it say you need to kind of be good at it? No. Or just dabble a little bit in it? You need to be very good at it. And that's why we provide assessment-based treatment in the field. Patient assessment is used to some degree in every patient encounter. And when I tell you it's systematic and you're going to do the same thing for every patient every time, that's true. It really is true. But sometimes if you if you walk in a room and they're sitting up looking at you and they say, hey man, what's going on? Have you not skipped some of those steps all at one time? 
Okay. But you're still doing it. Just so you don't really consciously think about it. Oh, well, I know he's breathing because he's talking to me. You don't say stuff like that, and you probably don't even think it, but you just know it. Okay? Everybody look at the piece of paper I gave you. And this is what you will have to perform uh, as far as your practical skills testing in this class for EMT, but you'll have to go somewhere else and perform these for somebody else as a part of advanced EMT. As your instructor, I'm allowed to check you off on these in the EMT portion, but not the advanced. But I want you to look at it. Uh, come on now. assessment, there are five main parts. There's scene size up. When does scene size up begin? As soon as you get dispatched. As soon as you get dispatched. And what you think about that? You get dispatched to a four-car MVC. They don't like saying MVAs anymore because they stood for what? Accident. But they're preventable, right? Motor vehicle collisions, four vehicle MVC, and you get dispatched to it. What do you already know? Why? There's a minimum of four. Because four somebody's had to drive, right? It might, might have been a church van, one of them. You know what I'm saying? So you need at least... Some more, right? So you start your size up when dispatch drops the call. When does scene size up end? You get back at the station. Scene size up is dynamic. It's ongoing. You need to constantly have that situational awareness and understand what's going on. Because what's your primary concern in scene size up? What are you trying to do? Take care of me. Take care of me. I like that answer. But look here. Look on this piece of paper. It says scene size up. Determine this is whether the scene or situation is safe. Determines the mechanism of injury or nature of illness. We haven't gotten to these terms yet. But mechanism of injury means how did they get hurt? Okay. Determines the number of patients. Requests additional help if necessary. And considers stabilization of the spine. We, again, some of this stuff we haven't gotten to yet, but you have two types of patients, right? It's either medical or it's trauma. What if you're not sure? It's trauma. Be treated as trauma. 
Because if you don't protect the spine and there is an injury, well, that's bad, right? But if you protect the spine that isn't injured, have you done anything wrong? No. So if you're not sure, it's trauma. So the scene size up is the first part. And again, it's always your safety, your partner's safety, and then the safety of the patient or patient's and then safety of the bystanders. And what's the best way to keep a bystander safe? At least 50 feet. Got to get back. All right, then you have your primary assessment. If you look on down the sheet here, you'll see primary survey slash resuscitation. Your primary assessment, in my opinion, is without a doubt the most important part of any patient assessment. What are you looking for in your primary assessment? What's going to kill them right now? Airway, breathing, circulation. What's going to kill them right now is what you're looking for in your primary assessment. Nothing stops you from getting to your primary assessment. Okay? What happens to every patient 100% of the time if they don't have a clear patent airway, they die. So you assess the airway. If something's wrong, you fix it right then, right there. Then you go to breathing. If something's wrong, you fix it right then, right there before you go on to circulation, which is C, circulation. Something's wrong with it, you fix it right then, right there. Okay? Then you've got, you get your patient history, then do a secondary assessment, and then reassess. Might as well start getting used to this right now. You have two types of patients other than medical trauma. I should say two categories, not types. You're going to have priority patients, put priority slash critical, and then you're going to have not priority slash stable. You will reassess a priority patient every five minutes. A stable or non-priority patient, you reassess every 15. All right? Any questions about that very fast overview? It was, what was the second word for the non-priority? Stable. And I want you to understand something, too. Whether we're talking about taking vital signs, whether we're talking about uh, <laughs> whether we're talking about vital signs or whether we're talking about doing an assessment or reassessment, I want you to think about if you take your first set of vital signs, you assess the first time, that is your baseline. That's what you have right now. What does that tell you about that patient? where they're at at that moment in time, right? And nothing else. So there's this term called trending vital signs, trending your assessment. If you reassess every five or five or 15, once you get that second set of vitals or that third set of vitals, what do you know now? Where they're going. And that's absolutely right. And I'm gonna, this is what I want you to think about when it comes to vital signs and assessments. When you do that first one, that is your baseline. That's just like taking a Polaroid picture of somebody. All right? 
How many young folks have no idea what a Polaroid picture is? <laughs> I date myself all the time. I didn't talk about the flash bulbs, though, so I guess it's not that bad. Polaroid picture, snap. You know what's happening at this moment in time. But once you start trending vitals, trending assessments and reassessments, that's more like a video. You see the difference? That one set, that baseline, is that snapshot in time, that Polaroid picture. But two, three sets of vitals, depending on what their condition is, depending on how long you're with them, that's like a motion picture. That's telling you not only where they're at right now, it's telling you where they're going. Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Are they staying the same? Is that clear as mud? All right. Sign or a symptom? Symptom is a subjective condition the patient feels and tells you about. I'm nauseated. A sign is an objective condition that you can observe. Patient's skin is pale, cool, and diaphoretic. Sign, symptom. We good? Scene size up. How do you prepare for a specific situation? It begins with the dispatcher's basic information, and then you combine that or add that to what I call the windshield survey. You pull up on scene, whether it's somebody's house, whether it's an automobile accident on the side of the road, or whether you're at Walmart, wherever you're at. Windshield survey. What are some things you need to be looking for? Looking through your windshield, what are you trying to determine prior to you getting out? It's seen safe. If you're at a house, what are some things that might make that yard unsafe? Dogs. What else? Somebody said something. Bystanders. If they're fist fighting in the front yard, that's not a good sign. Guarantee you. So if you pull up on a car wreck on the side of the road, what are some things that might make it unsafe? Power lines. Listen, you'd be amazed how many times cars hit them. So that's what you do. You take dispatcher's information. Um... And I want everybody in the room to write this down. It is better to be proactive instead of reactive. It is much better to have resources in route and not need them than to need them and not have them in route. Now that's just a waste of folks' time and gas money and everything else, ain't it? To have stuff in route that you're probably not going to need. Y'all agree with that? Time equals tissue, right? If And again, I told you, life or death decisions. If you're not paying attention to your dispatch, if you don't, you go into that four-car MVC and you ain't really thinking, you ain't requested nothing, and you show up by yourself and you got multiple entrapments and ejections. Now, that's right. That's what you call pucker factor. <laughs> because you just cost them patients minutes, times, right? Time. So 
proactive instead of reactive. It's better to have them in route and not need them. If it turns out you don't need them, you get back on that radio, right? And cancel. Ensure the scene is safe. Don't put yourself at risk by entering scenes that are dangerous or have not been stabilized. Assess the patient's mechanism of injury or the nature of the illness. Quickly assess the scene to determine if other patients are present. Request additional resources if the number of patients exceeds the capabilities of the initial responding unit. This could include more ambulances, fire department, heavy rescue, or hazmat response. Determine whether the patient may have injuries to the spine in association with the chief complaint. If you suspect spinal injury, apply appropriate stabilization procedures. All right. The pre-hospital setting is not a controlled and isolated scene. It is unpredictable. It can be dangerous. And if something happens to you, it's happened to you, right? Um, it's kind of really unforgiving. First, ensure that your safety comes first. Your partner, you and your partner, then the patient, like we said. Uh, whenever you're on a roadway, what do you want to make sure you have on? Yeah, an ANSI-approved reflective vest. And what other quality does this vest need to have? It needs definitely has to have that so many cubic centimeters actually they tell you exactly how much a reflective material has to be on the vest but what's another really good quality that this vest should have huh tear away because you get hung up on a mirror listen if you want to really get in an American's attention you ain't got to do nothing on TV you ain't got to do nothing at a sporting event. You ain't got to do nothing but get between him or her. Get somewhere between work and home and clog up a roadway. You got their attention because that's all they're looking at. Looky-loos, right? And when they drive through, if the mirror or bumper or something hangs that vest, you need it to be able to tear away. If you don't think people will run over you, Go hang out on I-85 for a few minutes. <laughs> the chemicals ain't the worst thing you got to worry about. It's the people. So wear your, your safety vest anytime you're near a roadway. Always look for hazards, and there's a bunch of hazards out there. Uh, when is the best time to, for you to consider environmental conditions? What's the best time for you to consider what the weather's going to be the day you're working? The day before. The day before. Make sure you got what you need. What be If you were working on an ambulance right about now in Cowdy County, Georgia, or anywhere in the southeast, really, what's something you want to make sure you got right about now? A rain jacket. That's right. So be prepared is the point. And again, we've already talked about that, but protect bystanders from becoming patients. And the best way to do that is to get them gone. Occasionally, you will not be able to enter a scene safely. 
If the scene is not safe for you to be there, should you go in? What if there are five patients on the ground screaming for help? If you go in, what are they going to call you shortly after that? Number six. A patient. Don't be that person. Because I'm going to tell you, it, and it, it's human nature, if you respond to a call and you know there's somebody that you work with that's down on that scene also, maybe you're the second in on it, the first in crew kind of got hung up themselves and they're injured or sick now. You show up on the scene. Who are you going to first? Your people. So what does that do to the care that's going to be rendered to the original patient? It delays it. So when I say you don't go in there until the scene is safe, it doesn't matter what, you know, that always kind of just naturally goes against some of the things that you feel as a human being and you want to go in and help people. But if you get in there and become a patient, you've actually, you've been very, very, not only are you hurt or injured, but it's been very detrimental to the to the care that that original patient is going to get or not get. I'm telling you now, if it comes down between me or somebody else, y'all better come to me. <laughs> so don't do that. If the scene is unsafe, now, how are you going to make it safe? If it's something like that, something if it's a law enforcement issue, you're going to call for law enforcement. They're going to get on the scene first and clear it before you ever get there. If it's a hazardous material situation, you're going to call for a hazmat team. They're going to make it safe before you ever go in there. It doesn't matter how many people are on the ground. You don't do it. Okay? All right, determining the mechanism of injury or nature of illness. To care for trauma patients, you must understand the mechanism of injury. What happened to them? How did they get injured? How did they get hurt? Okay. And for some reason on this slide, they want you to know that the brain, spinal cord, and eyes are fragile and easily injured. Every class I threaten to make my own slides. So, if mechanism of injury for a trauma patient is for a trauma patient is how they got hurt, what does nature of illness mean? You think? Why are they sick? Why? All right. You can use the MOI or mechanism of injury as a guide to predict the potential for a serious injury. Evaluate three factors. The amount of force applied to the body, length of time the force was applied, and the area of the body that was involved. Where do injuries occur in the human body? How does energy like to travel? Huh? In a straight line. Energy likes to travel in a straight line. So a lot of times, not always, it's the amount of force and energy that's applied to the body and that part of the body's ability to absorb it. If it can't absorb that much energy, you have an injury. 
if it's traveling a straight line, it's going to create an injury where it can no longer travel in a straight line. Think about it. If you fall over and you throw your arm out to catch yourself, a lot of times where are the injuries sustained? Wrist. Because it's bent, right? Or up here in the shoulder. Because it goes up and when it can't make that hard right, something snaps, right? Blunt trauma. You've got two types of trauma. You got blunt force trauma and you have penetrating trauma. The names alone pretty much tell you the differences between the two. Oh, and just so you know, there's a patient assessment trauma sheet, but there's a patient assessment medical sheet as well. And you'll eventually get the medical sheet and you'll be responsible for knowing both of them plus others. But if you know this sheet right here, this patient assessment trauma sheet, and you know what steps come in what order, it will it will literally allow you to answer questions on your computer test. Because they're going to give you a scenario sometimes, and then they're going to say, you've got 56-year-old male complaining of whatever, whatever, whatever. You've done this and this. What's your next course of action? And if you know the next step on that piece of paper, you can answer the question. So there's multiple reasons for learning. I didn't say memorizing. Learning these pieces of paper. Okay? All right. I digress. Blood force trauma. The force occurs over a broad area. The skin is usually not broken. Tissues and organs below the area of impact may be damaged, however. Blunt force trauma, the skin is typically not broken. It's over a wider area. So with that being said, penetrating trauma, you think, does what? Breaks the skin, right? Penetrating trauma is the force of the injury. The force of the injury occurs at a small point of contact between the skin and the object. There's an open wound with a high potential for infection. The severity of the injury depends on the characteristics of the penetrating object, the amount of force of energy, and the part of the body affected. Whole big old dose of common sense. How bad do you think these things are sometimes? Well, I'm here to tell you some of the worst things that you will witness as an EMT or a paramedic. It's going to be some of these automobile crashes. Amount of force to the body is related to the speed of the crash. And again, common sense. Think about it. If somebody... Automobile accident number one happens on Market Square Road here. Automobile accident number two happens on I-85. Which one do you think is going to be worse? Because of the speed. <clears throat> the speed. Drivers are at a higher risk of injury than passengers because of the steering wheel. Um, 
unrestrained victims are at the highest risk or at high risk. Everybody please write this down. Ejected patients typically die. Not always, but ejected patients. And I can't remember the, the actual percentage of the odds of death, how far the percentages go up, but ejected patients typically die. It says on 315, the patient's chance of death is 25 times greater if they're ejected. There you go. So I didn't have to remember. 25% greater. It's my personal experience that that number is low. Falls. The amount of force is related to the distance falling, obviously, and what you hit. Again, good old common sense. Let's just say two people fall off of a balcony, say like at West Georgia College. One of them lands in the grass, and the other one lands on the concrete sidewalk. Which one got hurt? They're both. But this is a national registry question. I'm looking for the best answer. The one that hit the concrete, right? Some things you can't make up. The amount of forces related to the distance falling, the type of surface they landed on, and the bodily part that impacts first. With falls over three times a patient's height, the risk for multiple systems injury increases. That's an adult, okay? Two rather than three times the patient height for pediatric patients. So, what you need to consider strongly is if an adult patient falls three times his, his or her height or more, probably needs to go to a trauma center. If a pediatric patient falls more than twice of their height, you might want to consider a trauma center. Now, you can't... You will not make the perfect decision every time. But if you're going by these industry standards um, and following your protocol, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right for the patient, too. But long story short, if somebody fell off the roof of the house, landed on their head, you probably need some specialized surgeons to handle that, right? Are they typically at your local hospital? No. You need to go to a trauma center. And if you take them to the local hospital, what are they going to do? All right. But now, wait a minute. There's laws in place that can't that won't allow them just to send them right back out. It's called the MTALA laws. And they have to perform certain tests and procedures on that patient before they're allowed by law to send them out to the hospital that can actually fix their problem. So it's best, if you're going to make a mistake, it's best to make a mistake on the cautious side. You follow me? All right. Gunshots and stab wounds <laughs> it says here they're difficult to assess. Why? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you can't, and you can't look at them organs in there either, right? To see what's damaged and what's not. That's why we have chapter 5. That's why you know where all the organs in the abdomen are, right? In the chest. You already know that if the pancreas gets injured, it was probably what type of trauma? Why? Man, you, you was impressing me there for a <laughs> Why is it penetrating? Because it's deeper. It's deeper in the abdomen. So that blunt force wouldn't injure the pancreas. It has to go deeper via penetrating trauma before the pancreas is going to be injured. Your knowledge of the organs and the structures of the body and their location based on the mechanism of injury, keeping a high index of suspicion. If you think it's possible that it's happened, you probably need to stay, take steps to take care of it, right? So you take your knowledge of the human body, mechanism of injury, always having a high index of suspicion, and that's how you treat your patients, your trauma patients anyhow, okay? But if you don't know that the liver's right here, and you see a big red welt right here. And the whole abdomen's rigid for some reason. And you didn't know that the liver holds how much of your total blood volume? 40%. Up to 40%. And you didn't really understand why that skin was pale, cool, and diaphoretic. Or why is he breathing really fast? If you don't understand these things, the, the, these, the way that the body systems react to these things, then you're not going to know what to do for them, Right? But if you do understand these concepts, it's very easy to figure out what to do. All right. Gunshot and stab wounds, difficult to assess. To assess. Often little external evidence. And just because, and I think this is what you were alluding to, Nick. If, if, your bullet, if your entry wound's right here, exit wound's right there, does that mean the bullet went straight through and out? No, not necessarily. Ricochet, you know, medium velocity, high velocity, all that affects the caliber, all that affects how that bullet acts. Stab injuries exert little force but can be lethal. Again, depends on the length of the blade and where you got stabbed and all those other kind of things. Gunshot entrance and exit wounds may be unrelated to the organs injured. For medical patients, determine the nature of illness, so the NOI. So you've got MOI and NOI, mechanism of injury, what happened to them, how did the injury get sustained, and you've got MOI, excuse me, NOI, nature of illness. Often best described by the chief patient's chief complaint. And when you hear the word or phrase chief complaint, that is what the patient tells you is wrong. What's wrong with you today, partner? My chest hurts. That's his chief complaint. But it's in the patient's own words. So if someone is unconscious, what is their chief complaint? They don't have one because it has to be in their own word. But they are unconscious, right? 
you might want to be suspicious if you pull up and somebody says, man, dog, I'm unconscious. <laughs> might not be true. Just saying. So, for medical patients, determine the nature of illness. It's often best described by the chief, a patient's chief complaint. Alright, there are similarities between the mechanism of injury, injury and nature of illness. Both require you to search for clues, talk with the patient, family, or bystanders, and use your senses to check for clues. Anytime you assess a patient, it's like putting a puzzle together. And there's multiple things that's going to provide you with a piece to the puzzle. Okay? Now, you roll up to something there's a teenage kid laying there skateboards over here and you see his legs hinged up three different directions it ain't that hard to figure out what happened right and he's going to tell you sometimes with the medical on the medical side you have to do a little more a little more research if you will a little more investigating to figure out what's really going on but you just always remember this. You can't overlook the obvious. If someone is a known diabetic and he or she is unconscious laying there snoring, what's the problem? It's a diabetes-related problem, right? It's probably hypoglycemia. Blood sugar's probably low. You can't tunnel in on that, but knowing your patient's history a lot of times will speak to the present. If you know what they've got a history of, someone's got congestive heart failure, they can't move blood effectively, fluid builds up in places, you get dysphagia or having difficulty in breathing, what's the problem? It still comes from that congestive heart failure, right? They got fluid built up in their lungs. The chronic will always tell on the acute. Just kind of keep that in mind. All right, y'all stretch yourself for a second. Our personal protective equipment, PPEs. When we say PPEs, what are we talking about? Okay, but somebody look in the book and tell me what all, if you have to look in the book. Yes, ma'am. All right, non-latex gloves. Gowns, fluid-resistant gowns, eye protection with side splash protection. Boots, if you have them. Boots. Yeah, the um, the respirator, the the mask for the for for your, I guess, breathing in and out there. Uh, and that's that's a technical use of that, by the way. Uh, if you have the N95 mask or the HEPA respirator, those are your PPEs. I'm telling you now, what could happen to you if you just touch somebody's skin? No broken skin, no um, no wounds, no blood, no nothing. You just, with your bare hand, touch the bare arm of somebody else. It, could anything bad happen from that? What type of bacteria? It's, it's called flesh eating. Yeah, the ungood kind. Badder than normal. You could wake up. 
listen, don't touch people. They're dirt daubers in this world. Don't touch them without your gloves on. Just don't do it. Alright? Because what's your number one priority? Your safety. And I want you to think about this, especially... Any of y'all have kids at home? Uh, now, gee, they're yours about grown, but you still got them. Not many of y'all. What about fur babies? Brothers? Fur babies. <laughs> brothers, younger brothers, okay. It doesn't matter. If you live with a family unit of some sort, you don't want to take no mess home to them, right? So wear your PPEs, and I'm going to tell you, follow your protocols and don't get in trouble. Don't go to work for those of y'all that already have jobs saying, well, Jeff Denny said, don't do that because that ain't going to carry any weight. All right? <laughs> you should be washing your uniforms at work, too. You shouldn't be bringing your uniforms home washing. Now, again, what Jeff Denny thinks don't mean nothing to these other folks. So if you go quote me, they ain't going to care. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. But don't take stuff home to your family, is, is my point. Wear your PPE. Standard precautions have been developed for use in dealing with objects, blood, body fluids, other potential exposure risks of communicable diseases. If it's wet and belongs to somebody else, you don't want it on you. And that's just a fact. Now, they can say what they want about, well, saliva unless it won't hurt you unless it's blood-tinged or... I, who wants to gamble on that? I don't. If it's wet and belongs to somebody else, you don't want it on you. Okay? When you step out of the EMS vehicle, standard precautions must have been taken or initiated. At a minimum, gloves must be in place, considered glasses and a mask. Does that mean you should put on your gloves and then get in the ambulance and drive to the scene? No. No. Why is that a bad thing? Because what's on it? Listen, if y'all, and I'm not trying to be funny, but y'all y'all know what a Petri dish is, right? It's where they grow bacterias or whatever. If you can get your hands on some of them, that's what you should do. You should walk around your station. You should rub a steering wheel and put it in there close it up. And go in there, rub the computer keyboard, put it in one and close it up. Huh? Can you? Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it just to prove a point then. Um, no one left windows open, did they? <laughs> <laughs> I did. There's a whole door right now. <laughs> oh, no. You didn't learn last time. <laughs> you know what the definition of insanity is, don't you? <laughs> do it, doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result? No. Nah. All right. All right, so long story short, don't put your gloves on while you're in a route. Once you're getting out, but you definitely want to have your PPEs in place prior to making patient contact while you're walking in the house or while you're approaching the vehicle or whatever. Because I promise you, if you have them in your pocket when you make patient contact, you're going to see something that's going to require you to act immediately, and then you're in a position. Do you just do it because that's what's best for the patient or do you stand there fumbling with your gloves? Okay? So don't do it. 
Urine scene size up accurately identify the total number of patients. Critical in determining the need for additional resources. You're taking a, a guess, at least, or, uh, or your best estimate of the number of patients when you're getting your dispatch information and while you're en route. Once you get there, determine exactly how many patients you have. You need to know how many you have and whether they are priority or not priority, right? Because can you carry multiple patients in one ambulance? Yeah, it happens every day. The, not, the stable patients for the most part, right? Can you put two unstable patients in an ambulance? Well, you could, but it's like a horrible idea. <laughs> because you can't, you can't dedicate adequate time to neither one of them to do what they need, okay? So you're gonna determine the number of patients. Uh, it's gonna help you determine your resources that you need. Uh, you should always use the incident command system, ICS. Why are you gonna call command on a medical call? Huh? Same concept as why you do this patient assessment the same way every time, right? If you pull up 99 times and there's really not a whole bunch to anything, but you initiate incident command and you follow all the steps, then that hundredth time you pull up and it's a 80-story building with people jumping out of every window, you're still going to be able to give that same scene size up and relay all the information that you need to unless you're just naturally excitable. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, triage is the process of sorting patients based on the severity of their condition. It's a French word, triage. And we'll talk about that at length later on. Um, again, you may need more ambulances, you may need specialized resources. Um, High angle rescue, hazardous material, swift water, search and rescue. All depends on what you need. And you don't do anything that you're not properly trained and properly equipped to do. Because you're going to get hurt. All right? To determine if you require additional resources, ask yourself how many patients are there. What's the nature of their condition is kind of what I was speaking about a moment ago. Um, and is the scene safe or is there some sort of threat or risk to my well-being that, that, that's involved? And if so, you get if you need specialized units to come there to make the scene safe, then so be it. That's just where you start. All right, primary assessment. Very important. What did I tell you you were looking for in your primary assessment? What's going to kill them right now? The airway, breathing, and circulation. If something's wrong, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to be with a patient for an hour before you get to the hospital for whatever reason? And never, ever, ever, that, that wasn't the end of my question. Is it possible to be with a patient for an hour? Let's just say two hours. And never check for a pulse and be doing your job properly. Unless 
That's a trick question. And the answer is yes, it's possible. Because airways first. And if something's wrong with airway, you fix it before you go to breathing. And what if you can't get the airway? You can't get the occlusion out of the airway. What are you going to do for that hour? Try to get that airway clear. And nothing else. So it is possible. It's not likely, but it's possible. Patient assessment begins when you greet your patient. Assuming they're awake. The goal is to identify and initiate treatments of immediate or potential life threats. The patient's vital signs will determine the extent of your treatment. Just ignore that statement. Vital signs are going to be in there, but are you going to do vital signs before you do the ABCs? No. Listen, when you walk up and you're going to see on your sheet, it says form a general impression. You walk up to any patient and you look at them. I'm going to tell you something. If you don't know it already, you'll figure it out. Sick folks look sick. And that's just true. If someone has some sort of illness going on to where they're, they're really not stable, they're going to look like, uh-oh, something's wrong with Buddy, right? People that are hurt, seriously injured, they've got to look. You're going to know it. And usually it's the skin that gives them away, okay? Pale, cool, and diaphoretic is not good. So, ABC. Then you'll do your vital signs. Because basically, once you get through your airway, breathing, and circulation, once you complete your primary assessment, you, you're searching for and identifying any potential life threats, then bam, you make a transport decision. Everybody in the room, write this down. Critical patients or priority patients, ever how you want to put it, are off the scene within 10 minutes. If you identify a priority patient, he or she is to be transported off of the scene within 10 minutes. Because no matter how good of an EMT or advanced EMT or paramedic you are, you are not a doctor. You are not at a hospital with all the tools they have. Priority patients are off the scene in 10 minutes. All right. Form your general impression. It is formed to determine the priority of care based on your immediate assessment. You walk up uh, as a male peers. I mean, you're just thinking to yourself as you're walking up. Male appears to be in his 30s, sitting in the chair. He's conscious and alert, but that skin's pale, cool, and diaphoretic. He's holding his chest. Ooh, you probably figured out everything you need to know already, right? In reality... Make a note of a person's age, sex, and race. Still not sure what race has got to do with it, but that's what they say. Their level, uh-oh, this is a big one, level of distress. Again, it gets back to what I was saying a second ago. Sick folks look sick. If someone's struggling to breathe, that's not good, and that's obvious, right? And their overall appearance. Position yourself lower than the patient or at least at eye level. 
You don't want to tower over anybody. Okay? It makes people... It just naturally makes them uncomfortable. And you're... And yeah, when I say you need to build a, a good rapport with your patients, yeah, typically you're only going to be with them 15, 20 minutes at the most. But it's important that they kind of trust in you a little bit, right? If you pull up looking like a dirt dauber, being rude, what happens to their vital signs instantly? It's not good, right? You're affecting them and their well-being just basically on how you present yourself. And that's a fact. So always keep that in mind. So don't tower over Be polite, look neat, have nice uniform, whatever, and always stay at their eye level. Introduce yourself. Talk to them. Address them by name. And ask about the chief complaint. If you walk up and they're sitting in the chair looking at you and you say, hey, I'm Jeff Denny, I'm with Cowdy County, uh, I'm a paramedic, we're here to help you. Is it okay if I take your vital signs? If they say, yeah, sure, it's okay if you take my vital signs. What do you know about the ABCs already? They got them. They got them. Because they're not going to speak without an airway, right? Because you can't make sound unless air is moving back and forth across your vocal cords. You know they're breathing adequately because they're setting up conscious enough to remain in that chair, right? And circulation. Skin looks okay, so you know they're circulating all right. But also, as you walk up to a conscious patient, if you just reach down, and we'll get to this later on, but I'm just kind of skipping ahead. If you reach down and feel right there with the pads of two fingers... What bone is that? That anatomical position, right? It's the lateral bone of the of the lower arm. Which one is that? It's the radius. Or the radial bone. That's a radial pulse that you feel right there. And you might as well start practicing that now and just harass all your family and friends. You need to feel for radial pulses. If they're conscious and alert and talking to you and you reach down and you feel, you don't even have to count it. If you feel that radial pulse you know at that point that their blood pressure is su- is sufficient to sustain life right now, anyhow. Okay? Just little quick things to do. You want to treat? Yeah. Form a general impression of the patient. Determine if the patient's condition looks stable or unstable from the initial appearance. Be prepared to change your mind as the assessment continues and... If you find the patient's condition improving or deteriorating. Alright. Did anybody notice what he what he did with his left hand there? Well he was bleeding, right? When I tell you that nothing gets between you and the ABCs, but again, don't remove common sense. If and I said ABCs are in that order, right? If you come up on somebody and they are bleeding really heavily. Now, you hadn't done airway, you hadn't done breathing yet, right? Maybe they're unconscious and not talking to you. But by all means, throw a gloved hand on that wound that's bleeding that heavily. While you secure the airway and the breathing. Because controlling bleeding is part of the C, or the circulation. Okay? So if they're bleeding heavily, by all means, throw a gloved hand on there while you do the airway and breathing, okay? 
If you hear sucking sounds come from their chest when they breathe, throw a gloved hand on it while you secure the airway. Then you'll fix that, and we'll talk about how to fix that later. But that's what he's doing with his hand. All right. During your general, uh, uh, your primary assessment, again, you're trying to determine whether the patient is stable, unstable, or maybe they are stable right now, but based on the mechanism and keeping that high index of suspicion, you understand they may become unstable. And understand, too, sometimes you'll get to patients before the full range of signs and symptoms develop. You might watch them develop as you're sitting there with them. So just because they're stable this second, based on what happened, is no guarantee that they'll be stable by the time you leave the scene. Okay? Level of consciousness. And that is considered a vital sign. When I say level of consciousness, what are we talking about? <clears throat> well, they're responsive. Okay. Responsive with an unaltered level of consciousness. Responsive with an altered level of consciousness or unresponsive. Long story short, if you walk in the room and they're sitting there looking at you, their eyes are open. Okay. Then... They are conscious. They're awake. They're looking at you. But that doesn't mean that they're oriented. Okay? Alert or oriented. If their eyes are open, they're alert. But uh, that gets a little, little confusing there. But do y'all, have we talked about the CA and O times 4 yet? We probably did when we were talking about who can refuse treatment, right? Conscious, alert, and oriented times 4. C-A-N-O times four. How do we get to four? Yep. Do they know their name? Do they know where they're at? Do they know what day of the week it is? And do they know what happened? Assessment of an unresponsive patient focuses on the ABCs. Listen, if you ever have any patient and and you maybe you're on a fire engine waiting on the ambulance to get there, maybe you're on the ambulance waiting for assistance to get there before y'all could load the patient up, it doesn't matter what's going on. But if you ever find yourself in a position to where you don't know what to do next, always fall back to the ABCs. Airway, breathing, circulation. Always reassess. Okay. If someone is unconscious or responsive, that's not normal. And if they stay that way, sustained unresponsiveness, that means there's something particular, particularly significant. And just so you know now, Rapid transport. If National Registry asks you a question that gives you a scenario about a trauma patient and what's your next course of action, that whole thing I told you that they're going to do to you, look for the answer that has rapid transport in it. That's going to be the correct answer. 
Because registry is not going to test you on a stable patient. They want to know that you know what to do, that you could recognize the unstable and the fact that you need to be off the scene in 10 minutes. All right? Just remember that. In conscious patient, a few questions can determine the chief complaint and provide detailed information about the mechanism of injury or nature of the illness. You can determine the patient's level of consciousness through the ABPU scale. ABPU stands for awake or alert, responds to verbal stimuli, responds to painful or physical stimuli, and unconscious. Have food. Alert. Awake and alert. You walk in a room, their eyes are open. Uh, responsive to verbal stimuli. You walk in, their eyes are closed. Maybe you do a sternum rub, pinch their earlobe, whatever your protocols wants you to do, and then they open their eyes. Or you walk in, the eyes are closed. They never open their eyes. Whether you do a sternum rub, pinch their earlobe, or anything. They never open their eyes, they're unresponsive. Alright. Orientation tests their mental status. Again, that's their ability to rem remember those four questions. Person, place, time, and event. Okay? It evaluates long-term memory, inter uh, intermediate-term memory, and short-term memory. The Glasgow Coma Scale, or GCS score, <coughs> is very helpful. Alright. Now, I want somebody to find the GCS, Glasgow Coma Scale score. Scale. Forget the score. Glasgow Coma Scale in the book. And I want you to tell me the three things that you're, I guess, evaluating and measuring when you calculate a GCS score. Eyes, verbal, and motor. And you can see, if you walk in the room with the eyes, it looks a whole bunch like that AFU, right? If you walk in the room and their eyes are open, what score do you affix for a GCS for that? For that component? Huh? Four. Four. Okay. Well, what if you walk in the room, the eyes are closed, and you say, Sir, ma'am, are you all right? And they open their eyes. What do they get? If you walk in a room, the eyes are closed, and you say, sir, ma'am, they don't react, but then you do a sternal rub and they open their eyes. What if they never open their eyes? So, dead people have a GCS of what? Three. Because there is no zero. If you put on your documentation GCS zero, I know instantly you don't know what you're talking about. All right. So, three is the worst. What's the highest score? Some of us in this very room have a score of 15. <laughs> Glasgow Coma Scale. Eyes, verbal, motor. You assess them. You look at these things. How do they react? Uh, with the verbal, how, what's the top score for verbal? They have to do what? <clears throat> Oriented conversation. Person, place, time, and event. They know all that, right? So what's the next highest score for? Confused conversation. 
Third, what's your name? Do you know where you at? I don't know. They just say something like they just don't really understand what you're asking them, okay? What's the next one? Inappropriate words. Maybe, uh, I mean, I don't know. They're just saying stuff that's not appropriate. Hey, do you know where you at? Uh, Wednesday. <laughs> that would be inappropriate. I mean, it, it, I guess it, it would be technically inappropriate on their part, but it, but again, you're going to tell if they're cussing because they're confused and frustrated or whatever, then then maybe. But if they make no sound at all, what do they get? One. All right, motor. How do they get the highest score? Say that again. Base command. Hey, can you squeeze both of my hands as hard as you can? And they just can't do it or don't do it or don't move or whatever. What's the next high score? I'm sorry? Localizes pain. All right, so the next one should be withdrawals from pain, right? The difference between the two. If they're lying supine, unconscious, and you do, or their eyes are closed, and you do that sternum rub, and they reach up and grab your hand. They localized that pain, right? They knew where they were hurting, and they're trying to make it stop. But withdrawals from pain, if you're doing a sternum, sternum rub and they just kind of try to roll away from you, they're not sure exactly what, where it's at and what's going on, but they know they don't like it, and they're trying to get away. But it's a, but it's a lower or a lesser degree of mentation. So they get a lower score. Alright? You will have a quiz on the Glasgow Coma Scale. I'm telling you now, you need to calculate one on every patient you ever go to. You need to know how to do that. And it's going to be on your test. I promise you, registry is going to ask you to calculate at least one Glasgow Coma Scale score. Alright? And there it is. Eye opening verbal motor. Alright, moving through the primary assessment, always be alert for signs of airway obstruction. If someone is supine, what's the quickest way to tell if their airway is partially occluded? They'll be doing what? It happens to some of us every night. Yeah, you yawn too, but snoring. <laughs> That's usually the tongue, okay? Determine if the airway is open or patent and adequate. An unconscious person cannot protect their own airway. You have to do it full. And we'll talk about techniques to do that later. Just know that an unconscious person cannot protect his or her own airway. You have to do it. Responsive patients who are talking or crying have an open airway. It's open. Watch and listen for how the patient speaks. If you identify an airway problem, stop the, ass the assessment and obtain a patent airway. 
If the airway is not clear and patent, you make it so before you do anything else. With unresponsive patients, immediately assess the airway. Use the modified jaw thrust technique when necessary. There's two different ways you can open an airway, right? Manual maneuver, that is. And I said you have two types of patients, right? Medical trauma. How do you open the airway manually on a medical patient? Head tilt, chin lift. How do you open the airway of a trauma patient? It's the jaw thrust or modified jaw thrust or, or whatever. And we're all going to demonstrate these, but basically you don't want to manipulate that spine like you would a medical patient because if they've got a, a fractured cervical spine and you tilt that head back, you could literally cut the spinal cord in two. You don't want to do that. So you open the airway basically by putting your thumbs on the zygomas, reaching around the back side of the lower jaw and displacing it forward or up, okay? Easier to do on a person than that rubber, rubber mannequin, but we're going to put our hands on it. We're going to do it. But basically, you're getting the back of that tongue out of that airway without manipulating the cervical spine. You're just displacing the lower jaw in an anterior fashion. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? All right. Talking patients have an open airway. Quickly evaluate airway agency to ensure the airway remains open throughout patient care. In the unresponsive patient, first determine the possibility of cervical injury before opening the airway. If a cervical injury is suspected, open the airway using the jaw thrust maneuver. Consider inserting an oropharyngeal or nasopharyngeal airway if indicated. Quickly inspect the neck for injuries that could interfere with ventilation. All right. All right. Adventitious airway sounds. Adventitious is not a good thing. All right. These are sounds. Normally, breathing should be effortless. And it shouldn't really make a whole bunch of sound. Okay. But as the air goes in and out, and again, how many of y'all went and bought you a stethoscope? Next time I ask that question, everybody should raise your hand. Because you need to have access to a... Huh? Okay, let me reframe my question. How many of y'all have a stethoscope? Raise your hand. Next time I ask that question, everybody should raise your hand. All right? You need to start practicing listening to air going in and out. You need to start... And, of course, we hadn't covered taking a blood pressure yet, but air going in and out of the lungs should only make that sound, the sound of the air going in and out, whatever that is. It sounds like, I guess. But, but here's the thing. It sh you should be able to hear it pretty clearly. And it should sound the same over here as it does over here. And it should sound the same in these lower lobes as well. Here and here should sound just like here and here, okay? And for, for someone who doesn't have some of these other airway sounds, that, that's typically documented as... Yes. 
By lateral. We always want to shorten the stuff, don't we? What's it, what does that mean? Really? By lateral. That means they're clear and equal. Some people put sleep, a C slash E, whatever. Ever, ever what you, those just style points. But airway and breath sounds need to be clear and equal bilaterally. That means I hear it just as well over here as I do over here, and there's not a bunch of crazy sounds. I just hear air going in and out, and I hear it adequately in all four places. Does that make sense? All right. Now, that being said, noisy breathing or, or adventitious airway sounds, the sounds that you hear will tell you where the problem is. Noisy breathing or bad airway sounds associated with the upper airway. What divides the upper airway from the lower airway? Chapter 5. The larynx. The glottic opening. That space between the vocal cords, and it's located in the larynx, yes. So, no, snoring. If someone is snoring, everybody's going to write these down, okay? If someone's snoring, what's the problem? It's a partial occlusion by the tongue of the upper airway. It's an upper airway problem. Snoring is partial occlusion of the upper airway by the tongue. If you hear bubbling or gurgling sounds. That is an occlusion of the upper airway caused by some sort of liquid. Somebody look in your book and tell me what crowing is. Or if you can't find crowing, look for strider. Tell me what that is. Buddy, I'm deaf. Strider or crowing? Hmm. Strider or crowing is a high-pitched inspiratory sound. That means when they're breathing in, that's when you'll hear this high-pitched sound, right? It's indicative of a partial upper airway occlusion. It's still all upper airway. Strider or crowing is a high-pitched inspiratory sound. It's indicative of a partial upper airway occlusion. And keep in mind, the airway may be occluded not just because they swallowed something or whatever... It could be that it's starting to swell shut because of um, a severe allergic reaction or something like that. Okay? Inspiratory. That means on inspiration when they're breathing in. High-pitched inspiratory sound that's indicative of a partial upper airway occlusion. That's strider or crowing. So, snoring, bubbling, gurgling... Crowing or strider are all abnormal sounds associated with problems with the upper airway. Can anybody find in the book some 
abnormal airway sounds associated with the lower airway? Or do you just know? How about wheezing? Wheezing is that musical sound almost or that whistling sound. Not always when they exhale. But you can have inspiratory and ex or expiratory wheezing, but it's that musical whistling sound made when they exhale, typically. It's a lower airway. And then you have something called rails, R-A-L-E-S. Rails sometimes sounds like little crackling sound in the lower fields of the airway. And that's indicative of fluid in the lower airway. Rails or crackling sounds are indicative of fluid in the lower airway. Ronchi, R-H-O-N-C-H-I, that's that sound that you don't even need a stethoscope to hear. That's a lot of fluid in the lower airway. That's when somebody coughs and you just hear that crap moving in their chest. We've all heard it. You know what I'm talking about. That's ronchi. That's a lot of fluid. You, you probably need a stethoscope to hear rails. You're going to hear ronchi from across the room. You'll hear that fluid moving in their chest when they cough. Why is extremely shallow breathing bad? Messes up what? What, what did I tell you that term was for the rise and fall of the chest? Tidal water. It's, if it's shallow, it's not enough. And of course, now if you're not breathing at all, that's obviously bad. Make sure the patient's breathing is present and adequate. And again, that Tidal volume is the biggest indicator of adequacy when it comes to breathing. Are they expanding and relaxing that chest the way they're supposed to? Because if they're expanding that chest adequately, they're creating a greater what? Do I? Okay, kind of, sort of, but I'm looking for something else. Yeah, they're making their chest bigger. They're creating a... A what? Somebody, somebody said it. Pressure gradient. Air is going to rush in. Okay. Obtain the following information. Look at the respiratory rate. What is the normal respiratory rate range for an adult? Child. 15 to 30. Infant. You need to look at the breathing, the rhythm. Is it regular or irregular? Breathing should be rhythmic. The breath should be coming in the same intervals of time, okay? Look at the quality and character of the breathing. In other words, do you hear some of those abnormal airway sounds? Or are they bilateral breath sounds clear and equal? You have to assess all of this. 
And again, what's the number one most important thing when determining whether the breathing is adequate? Two words. That's three. But <laughs> that's grammatically incorrect. Tidal volume, which is rise and fall of the chest. High tool volume. Assess breathing. Ask yourself, does the patient appear to be choking? Is the respiratory rate too fast or too slow? Are they too shallow or are they deep? Is the patient cyanotic? If your patient is blue, you can go out on a limb at that point and say they're not breathing adequately. That's cyanosis, right? That's due to a lack of arterial oxygen. Do I hear abnormal sounds when listening to the lungs? Again, upper airway, gurgling, snoring, crowing or strider, right? Lower airway, queezes, rails or ronchi. Administer supplemental oxygen if respirations are too fast. And that's a horrible slide because a lot of people are going to get oxygen. Okay, if someone, a lot of people are going to get oxygen, and this isn't the end-all, be-all criteria for the fact that they're going to get oxygen. If someone's slightly nauseated and you put them on a little nasal cannula about two liters per minute, that oxygen may alleviate nausea even. So there's a bunch of reasons why you're going to give oxygen. But what they need to be saying is how you're going to give the oxygen. If someone's breathing too fast more than 20 times a minute, and we haven't even covered these devices yet, but you're going to ventilate that patient with oxygen. Now, why are you going to give them more breaths when they're breathing too fast to begin with? Because they're breathing so fast, it, it, there's not enough time to adequately expand the chest. So you kind of juice them when they breathe in and expand that chest, even though they don't want to, right? If they're too shallow, same, same concept, or if they're too slow. Again, that's hypoventilations, and you want to give them more oxygen. But those are going to be reasons to give somebody oxygen via a bag valve mask as opposed to a nasal cannula or a non-rebreathing mask. But we'll talk more about that later. Don't get hung up on that. 1220. Why do children breathe faster than adults? <laughs> I don't want you to do that. It may not listen, it's just like registry. That's not necessarily a wrong answer, it's just not the best answer. Mm -mm. Why do children breathe faster than adults? Why? Huh? Chapter five. We just left it. Yeah. Not not title volume. 
We talked about vital signs started slowing the older they got for a particular reason. But when they're younger, they breathe faster, the heart beats faster for a reason. But when you reached about 18, the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system truly meshes together. Now they have oxygen reserves. But as a child, they don't have them. Y'all remember us talking about that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. 12 to 20, 15, 30, 25 to 50. Like the back of your hand, you should know that. Listen to breath sounds on each side of the chest. Normal breathing is silent, which is not really correct. You'll hear the air going in and out. If someone has a silent chest, if they're expanding their chest wall, relaxing it, and you don't hear air going in and out, turns out that's a really bad thing. So normal breathing is not silent. What's the medical term for good and easy breathing? You may see it on the test. Or, hey, next time you run a call, call in your radio report and say it. The patient has eupneic respirations. <laughs> see what the paramedic does. Eupnea. E-U, the medical prefix E-U means good or normal. And whenever you see P-N-E-A, Pena, let's talk about breathing. Every time, without fail. So, eupnea is good or normal breathing. But next time you have a patient that's breathing just fine, relay that information over the radio. Patient has eupneic respirations. Listen to them turn the sirens on. They're coming hot now. <laughs> so that's bad. Because they don't know. Normal breathing, it's not silent, but it doesn't have those other sounds that we talked about. You can always hear a patient's breath sounds better from the patient's back. Very few always and nevers in EMS, I'm just going to tell you that. And you'll figure out your own way of doing it. Here, 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 and here, some people prefer listening to the back. It just depends. The good Lord did not roll out people dough and take a people cutter and make us all. Everybody in this room is different. So you just got to figure out your own style and you have to look and you'll determine on your own. If, if you try here, 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 and here and you can't hear nothing, then try the back. And if you personally figure out it, man, I always go to the back anyhow, so I'm just going to go straight to the back from now on. Okay. So, but... Just remember that's an option. But you can't always hear better from the back, I promise. Here's some pictures of them listening to the back. Assess the patient's chest and for issues that may compromise ventilation, such as tension pneumothorax, flail chest, or sucking chest wound. Okay. That's great. I love it when they talk about stuff that don't even fit in. Alright, so when you listen to the breathing, the breath sounds, what are you listening for? In typical fashion, I got ahead of myself a little bit. But you may hear normal breath sounds. And that's when 
you hear air going in, you hear air going out, but you hear nothing else. And you hear it just as loud on one side as you do the other. That's clear and equal bilaterally. Okay? If you hear wheezing, what's the problem? Lower airway. Because it's down there. That's the bronchioles are spasming. Okay? Which are right down there at the alveoli. If you hear rails, what's the problem? But what's in the lower airway? A little bit of fluid. Because that old crackling sound. I was taught that if you take like hair, if your hair is long enough to do it, you pull it right next to the ear and you kind of rub your hair together, that little crackling sound. I never saw the correlation myself, but that's what I was taught. But it's a little crackling sound. It's a little bit of fluid in the lower airways. What are ronchi? A lot of fluid. That's when they you, you hear them coughing or whatever or talking, and you just hear that fluid moving. Don't even need a stethoscope. Strider. What did we say Strider was? High-pitched inspiratory sound, which is indicative of a partial upper airway occlusion. A lot of times, the airway's swelling. It's not so much that they swallowed something. And I said another name for Strider was... Growing. What's gurgling? Fluid in the upper airway. Everybody in the room, write this down. If you hear gurgling, you will instantly roll a patient on their side and suction. You will instantly roll a patient on his or her side and suction when you hear gurgling. Normal breathing is effortless. It is an effortless process. You should not have to work to breathe. I mean, you're technically doing work when you expand your chest wall, but it should be effortless. You're not thinking about it. It's just kind of happening, right? Eupnea. Um, so if eupnea is good and effortless breathing, what is bad breathing or, or difficult breathing? DYS is bad or difficult. EU is good or normal. And I said, whenever you talk about breathing, it's PNEA, right? This is good and normal breathing. Dyspnea is bad or difficult breathing. Eupnea, dyspnea. Good and easy breathing, bad or difficult breathing. Or, normal breathing, labored breathing. Why is it important to recognize normal breathing? Huh? There you go. If you don't know what's normal, you'll never recognize abnormal. Simple as that. Normal breathing is an effortless process that does not affect speech, posture, or positioning. Okay? It just kind of happens. Labored breathing, you may have retractions. Retractions are when the, they're working so hard to breathe 
that the skin kind of sinks in when they take a big breath in. A lot of times you'll see it right above the clavicles. You'll see retractions there. You'll see them between the ribs sometimes. Okay? So, the retractions above the clavicles. Supra is above. Clavicular means it's above what? The clavicles. Retractions. Supraclavicular retractions. That's when they're working so hard to breathe it sinks in above their collarbones each time they try to inhale. Okay? You'll have the use of accessory muscles. What are the normal muscles of respiration? What are the muscles that we normally use when we're experiencing eutonia? What muscles are we using to breathe? Intercostal muscles and diaphragm. Right? Dyspnea. Bad or difficult breathing. We're using the accessory muscles. Have I told you what those are yet? Neck muscles. Huh? Neck muscles. Yeah, they are. There. Some of them are in the neck. That's true. Alright. Everybody get ready to write these down. And I'm going to tell you before you even ask or think it. Yep, I spelled it right. Sternocleidomastoids. See, well, somebody's thinking he didn't spell that shit right, but I did. Sternocleidomastoids. They're in the neck, kind of run from behind the ear down the neck to right there about where your jugular notch is. Sternocleidomastoids. Then you have the parasternals. The medical prefix para means near. So where do you think the parasternals are? Near the sternum. And then you have the scalene. Those are in the neck as well. And maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but when you do see it, you'll never forget it. If someone's really struggling to breathe, boy, you'll see all these things flaring out in their neck. That's the scalene and the sternocleidomastoids. They're working extra hard to try to create a better gradient to bring in more oxygen because they don't feel like what they're getting is sufficient. And in order to expand that chest wall even further, they have to use additional muscles, right? Does that make sense? So they'll be using the accessory muscles of breathing. They'll be speaking in two to three word dyspnea. So if you walk in and you're asking them 50 questions, which that's kind of part of getting the history, right? But they, they just can't hardly even talk to you without stopping to catch their breath. You ask them a question, they might say something like, can't breathe. And then there's the gasping for air after that. That's two to three word dyspnea. What's the tripod position? It's when they're sitting up, hands on their knees, head thrust forward. Listen to me. If somebody, the, the harder it is for somebody to breathe, the further up they're going to want to be. 
That's just natural. And I tell people all the time, listen, you treat the patient and what the patient tells you, and I'm not suggesting you should do anything but, okay? But if someone's laying flat on their back, and it takes them 30 minutes while smoking a cigarette to tell you how they can't breathe, guess what they can do? Breathe. But how are you going to treat them? What position is that? Just looking at this kid. Does something look wrong? I can't really see his little chest, but he might have some retractions between the ribs. I'm not sure. All right, let's get started back. Um, again, primary assessment is designed to evaluate the immediate life threats, right? What's going to kill them right now? Airway, breathing, circulation. If something's wrong with airway, what do you do? Then you go to breathing. If something's wrong with breathing, if something's wrong, what do you do? Then once you've done that, you go to circulation. If there's something wrong, what do you do? If there is something wrong with the ABCs, or if you determine a problem in the primary assessment, what category patient do you think we're talking about? Is this somebody that's stable or unstable? Unstable. Or at least potentially going to be unstable, right? Yes. How long do you want to be on the scene with these people? Or less. Or less. Called the Platinum 10. Alright, there's a concept called the golden hour that probably a lot of us have already heard of. That means within an hour of the injury, hear what I said, within an hour of the injury, they get the problem fixed by a surgeon. That's going to provide them the best chances of life. I didn't say within an hour of you getting on the scene and them getting on the surgical table. I said within an hour of the injury occurring, if they get surgical interventions, it greatly en- enhances their chance of living, okay? That's the golden hour. The platinum 10, you absolutely have control over that one, right? Because you get on the scene, you identify their priority, you do what you got to do, you get them off the scene within 10 minutes, okay? Now, we don't do the old snatch and grab no more. That has happened a lot, but no, no, no. Anyhow. So, airway breathing we've covered, now we get the circulation. You want to assess the pulse rate, the pulse quality, and the pulse rhythm. Okay, normally the resting adult heart rate is between what and what? 60 and 100. Okay, that's normal. They're resting. The pulse quality, is it weak? Is it really, really strong? Or in medical terms, thready or bounding. Bounding's hard, easy enough to understand, right? It's almost, if you lay your, your fingers on their radial pulse, and that, that pulse wave is so strong, it's like it, you could feel it pushing your fingers up almost. That's bound, a bounding pulse. A thready pulse is very weak, very hard to feel, but it's there. Okay? And your pulse rate, your pulse should be, again, 
regular or rhythmic. It should be coming in the same intervals of time. A, a regular pulse or an irregular pulse. That's what you're trying to determine. And with circulation, look for any bleeding. Because if you look on your sheet again, down here in circulation, during your primary assessment, uh, assesses for check pulse. All right. Airway breathing. Then it says checks pulse. Assess for controls any major bleeding of present. Assesses the skin. Um, the skin, anytime you're losing blood or anytime there's not enough blood for whatever reason to get to all the places it needs to get to, the body has a life over limb mentality. Okay, there's compensatory mechanisms for everything in your body. Well, the backup system is if your body determines, if those chemoreceptors determine that there's not enough blood or not enough pressure to get the blood everywhere it needs to get, it shunts it away from the peripheral parts of your body, shunts it toward the closer, uh, closer toward the vital organs, okay? Anytime there's a problem and the body shunts blood away, the skin is the first organ to lose blood. That's why you look at their skin, no matter what the situation, you walk in their home or you see them in their car, wherever they're at, look at their skin. If it's pale, cool, and diaphoretic, there is a problem because the body's detected it and it's shunting the blood away from the skin toward the vital organs as a part of that life over limb mentality. Y'all tracking? All right. So for circulation, pulse rate, Pulse quality, pulse rhythm, look for and control any external bleeding and pay attention to the skin. Alright. A pulse is a pressure wave that occurs each time the heart beats, causing a surge in the blood circulating through the arteries. If you cannot palpate a pulse in an unresponsive patient, you should begin CPR. Now, where can you feel a pulse? Now, carotid, radial, brachial. You can feel femorals. Straight up from the big toes, the dorsalis pedis, the one that's posterior to your medial malleolus would be the what? That's the inside ankle bone, by the way. That's the posterior tibial. Chapter 5. Anyhow, you can feel a pulse wherever an artery passes over a bone close to the skin. That's where you can feel a pulse, right? Okay. This is what you need to know. Tachycardia is a heartbeat over 100 beats per minute. Bradycardia is a pulse rate less than 60 beats per minute. Obviously, that's in an adult. A normal pulse is strong, and a stronger than normal pulse is said to be bounding. Okay, I mean, if it's really, if you feel it, boy, 
And when you feel a bounding pulse, you'll, you'll understand it. That's bounding. That's stronger than normal. But a weak pulse is one that's difficult to feel, sometimes called thready, like we said. You should determine whether the pulse is regular or irregular. The skin. Um, skin's color, temperature, and moisture condition tells you what we've already talked about. Um, that is your quickest indicator that there is some something wrong with their ability to adequately perfuse. Because they've closed those pre and post capillary sphincters, bless you. They've shunted the blood away from the skin to maintain life. Capillary refill, what are they talking about there? All right. Capillary refill test is when, you know, you look at your, your nail beds, they're normally pink, right? If you were to take a, your finger and thumb and kind of squeeze their nail bed and let go, It'll be kind of white or pale for a second or two, then normal color will return, okay? That's called a capillary refill test. If you squeeze that nail bed and you let go and normal color returns within two seconds, that means capillary refill test is normal. They're perfusing blood in places in an adequate fashion. If it takes more than two seconds to return, that is described as CRT or capillary refill test is delayed. Now here's something that a lot of folks have forgotten, I guess. Capillary refill tests are really only truly accurate on kids less than six years of age. I'd write that down. CRT, let me rephrase a little bit, it's most accurate on kids six years of age or younger. Again, if you're an adult, if you have an adult patient and you look at their skin, if their skin is of normal color, warm and dry, CRT is going to be fine. If they're pale, cool, diaphoretic, do you really have to do it? No. You can actually raise their lips and look at their gums too. If their gums are kind of like real pale looking, you know they're not perfusing properly. You could do that up in their eyelids too. Look in the inside of their eyelid. It's supposed to be pink. But if they're not perfusing properly, it'll be a little more pale in color. Okay? Yeah. What I was saying, what do you notice there? Cyanose. When blood is not properly saturated with oxygen, it appears bluish. Changes in skin color may result from chronic illnesses or, or whatever. Cyanosis, that is a blue color, C-Y-A-N-O-S-I-S. The medical prefix cyan, C-Y-A-N, means what? What do you think? Blue. Okay. Uh, you've got two types of cyanosis when you're assessing a patient. You've got central cyanosis and you have peripheral or acro acro cyanosis and you've got central cyanosis. 
Acrocyanosis is cyanosis in the extremities. Central cyanosis is the head and chest. Which do you think is worse? Central cyanosis, no doubt. Yeah. Especially in the neonate, if you deliver a child or whatever, do you think it's truly uncommon or do you think it's kind of fairly common for a newborn to have a little cyanosis initially? Just a tad. But you know, you rub them and dry them and you aggravate the crap out of them and they start crying and it's probably going to go away, right? If not, maybe a little blow by oxygen or whatever. It'll go away. Central cyanosis speaks to a, to a I guess, a, a problem that may require a little bit more. 98.6 is our normal temperature. Capillary refill test that we just talked about. Who is that most accurate on? Should return uh, to its normal color within two seconds. If it takes longer than two, CRT is said to be delayed. All right. Take immediate action to restore or improve inadequate circulation. If it is found to be inadequate, control severe bleeding, deliver oxygen, and again, of course, if they are pulseless and apneic, you're going to do a CPR with an AED at this point. Assess for and control major bleeding. Assess the patient's pulse rate and strength. The patient's skin should be assessed for color, temperature, and condition. Initiate shock management, including keeping the patient warm and elevating the patient's legs if indicated. All right. They're talking about shock management. They said at this level, if someone is in shock or hypoperfusion, okay, what do you need to do for them? Why are we raising their feet like that? Helping gravity, right? Helping gravity keep blood toward the vital organs. Cover them, conserve body temperature, right? And we're going to give them oxygen. Of course, we ain't talked about that yet. But uh, when you assess for the bleeding, bleeding from a large vein is a steady flow of blood, and it's going to be fast if it's a large vein. Bleeding from an artery. An arterial bleed, every time that left ventricle contracts and ejects that 70 milliliters, right? It's going to come out. How many of y'all saw the, the, the hockey goalie that, and the skate come up and caught him on the neck? Go to YouTube and type in arterial bleed, all right? You'll get plenty of them. Oh, and go to YouTube, sure enough, and type in National Registry Patient Assessment Trauma. Start watching those too, but make sure it says National Registry. Make sure it's going right down this piece of paper. If they're doing something different than this piece of paper, turn it off. But go watch them so you can start getting the, so it's not so abstract to you. All right, so you're going to identify and treat any of the life threats, which are in the, the ABCs or the primary assessment. Um, 
You must determine to lie for it quickly and address it. You fix the problem as you come up to them. These people, not always, but a lot of times, if there's something interrupting the ABCs, they're probably, probably going to be unconscious. If they're not now, they will be pretty soon. And if the patient stops breathing, uh, it's going to lead to problems. Let me ask you a question. Can you be breathing without a pulse? If that heart's not beating, you're not breathing. You're not doing nothing, right? But can you have a pulse and not be breathing? For a short period of time, right? Once that heart becomes completely hypoxic, it's eventually going to shut down too. Um, Brain cells begin to die. What? How long without oxygen? About four to six minutes. And after ten minutes, it's all—it's a guaranteed, right? Brain damage. All right. 